Thanks for downloading and welcome to Take Orally, the podcast from Dream, Queen's Medical Centre, Nottingham. In this episode, we'll be discussing patients with sore throats. As ever, any information is correct at the time recording. Any and all guidelines mentioned are correct for Nottingham University Hospitals NHS Trust. Other trust guidelines may vary. All views and opinions are the speaker's own. Hello, welcome back to Take Orally and delighted to welcome uh, Thomas Stubington, who's a CT2 in Ear, Nose and Throat Surgery. Welcome, Tom. Thank you very much, Jamie. It's nice to be here. Um, thank you for coming. We're going to be discussing the patient with a sore throat. Yeah, so I thought we'd, uh, we'd take this from the sort of common garden tonsillitis, the nice simple stuff, and gradually work our way more and more complicated until we're into the really serious stuff that needs mm-hmm. you know, some really serious input. And I'm going to try and tell you a little bit about what to watch out for, when to worry, and what our sort of red flag type symptoms are. Okay. Um, so, sore throat is very common. We see these patients coming in in ambulatory areas, uh, sometimes referred in from GP, and it's very important to have a, a good system when we're examining these patients and talking yeah. to these patients. Um, tonsillitis, I think, as you said, very, very common. Um, so, what should our approach be to a patient with tonsillitis? Yeah, absolutely. So, I think. Our first priority with these tonsillitis patients is always whether or not they can eat or drink, and that mm. really does determine for us our management plan with them. Um, and I'll come back onto that in a, in a moment, but I think the first thing to remember with tonsillitis is not all sore throats are bacterial, and mm-hmm. not all sore throats need antibiotics. Mm-hmm. Um, and a brief little mention about the Centaur criteria, which is quite a useful little um, indicator, shall we say, as to whether or not a um, patient needs antibiotics. So the Centaur criteria is four categories um, that decide the likelihood whether or not it's going to be bacterial. Um, So number one is tonsillar exudate. If you've got really sluffy, yellow, horrible looking tonsils, may well be bacterial. Um, If they've got tender lymphadenopathy, again, we're thinking could be. Um, Fever or history of fevers, again, useful. And the big one is an absence of a cough. Because remember, an upper respiratory tract infection is going to make your throat sore, and that's likely to be viral. Sure. Um, so with the ton- uh, with the Centaur criteria, we're looking for three or more, um, and it's about sixty percent likelihood, give or take. And various people have done various different ones, mm. but Centaur seems to be the one we've stuck with. And a similar score thing is fever pain as well. That's a, another yes. one. Um, yeah. And that is yeah again the likelihood of, of streptococcal infection. I think yes. even then, if you t- you top score on that, I think five out of five. I think it's still only 65% chance of infection. Yes, yeah, something like that. Um, anyway, so when you've got sore throats, um, it's your simple basic standard history. You want to know how long it's lasting. Mm-hmm. You want to know um, whether it's getting worse, getting better. The added thing of really putting in, can they swallow anything? Because yeah. that's the important one. If they haven't been able to swallow for four or five days, they can't take their medication, You know, they can't take any pain relief then we're probably going to need to do something about that and they're probably going to be quite dehydrated. Um, But the important thing um, with with tonsillitis is whether or not it's something more serious. And I will come on to that in a minute um, Mm. and the red flags and things that we need to look into. Um, So just sticking with tonsillitis for the moment, um, when you're doing your examination, the main three things really that we want to look at are obviously looking in the mouth itself. and if they've got big inflamed tonsils that are coming across with lots yeah. of slough on them and they're feverish and they've you know had a lot of sort of, a lot of pain for a little while, these are the ones that it's usually pretty reasonable to give some antibiotics to. If they can swallow, 
fantastic. Give them the antibiotics as an outpatient prescription. Maybe give them some Diflam spray, um, Diflam mouthwash. It's uh, a good anti, uh, uh, sorry, an good analgesic that uh, can really, really make a difference for them. Um, and safety net them. Of course, yeah. So the safety net I'll come on to in a second. Um, so the next thing you're looking for is feeling down the net, looking for looking for lymph nodes. Mm -hmm. You're kind of expecting that, and you're going to expect them higher up in the neck because that's where the uh, the the throat and the oropharynx tend to drain to. Um, the last thing is we always check their neck movements. Um, we want to know that this patient can comfortably move their neck and that they've got no stiffness. And that relates to deep neck space infections and we'll talk about that um, in time uh, shortly. Um, so yeah, in terms of safety netting, what we would always tend to tell them is if you can't swallow a thing um, and you can't take your medications, then you need to come back again. Um, if you're finding that your neck is incredibly stiff and painful to move and you can't really move at all, again, they need to come back. And the other thing is that if they're noticing that they're starting to get changes in their voice, they're starting to get like a sort of lockjaw or a trismus, mm. again, then they need some more attention. Um, and that neatly takes us on to, uh, to Quincy's. Um, so Quincy's are peritonsillar abscesses. Um, and the quickest way to upset anyone in ENT is to, is to refer someone with a bilateral quinsy. <laughs> it, it doesn't exist. It's just like bilateral exist. leg cellulitis doesn't yes. exist. Yeah. No. So quinsy is it's always unilateral. Okay. Um, it's a peritonsillar abscess. So your tonsil, um, the meat of your tonsil sits in a nice little mucosal envelope behind your, um, your pharyngeal pillars. Um, and if you get a nasty tonsillitis that then becomes separative, pus then collects around there. Um, and quinsies, quinsies tend to occur um, superiorly, so you're going to see changes in your palate, your uvula, that's where the changes tend to be. Um, in terms of the history, um, you, you're going to get a patient that comes in, um, they've probably had a fair while of sore throat, you know, it, it may be 10 days, it may be a couple of weeks, they've quite possibly also had treatment from the GP and they're just, you know, they may have got a little bit better and then steadily got worse. Um, but the key things to look for in the history are, again, they can't swallow a thing, their jaw is really tight, they can't open their mouth properly, um, and they often say that they they can't speak properly, they've got yeah. this hot potato voice. <laughs> um, and that's that's the often misdiagnosed um, or sort of misquoted but very sort of good sign for Quincy. So you're talking like I've got a hot potato on your, Absolutely. On your tongue like that. See, I was yeah. too embarrassed to do an impression because I'm, <laughs> I'm not, bad, but I'm that not was too perfect. Hot potato voice like Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Spot on. <laughs> Thank um, you. <laughs> so, yeah, so the, these patients tend to look a fair bit sicker. Um, they, they, they're often drooling into a, in, into a bowl. They look quite hot and bothered. Um, they're probably a bit lethargic and they're feeling pretty darn rotten. Mm. If you've got someone that waltzes into your um, examination room and says, oh, hi, doc, yeah, I've just got a bit of a sore throat, um, swigging away at the Lucozade, mm. um, they're unlikely to have a Quincy. You know, um, Quincy's are nasty. Mm. Um, so the history is very similar for tonsillitis. Um, the only thing to mention with Quincy's is that smokers are at higher risk. Okay. Um, but then smokers are generally at higher risk of complications from sore throats anyway. Um, you know, it's the usual story there of poor immune system and constant irritation. Um, so yeah, getting on to looking in the mouth. And this is, Quincy is often referred to us and 
probably something like 10% of those that are referred as Quincy's actually turn out to be so. And actually, hospital specialties tend to be better at it, better at diagnosing it than GPs. Um, but we get it, you know, it, it is difficult to tell sometimes whether mm. it's a Quincy or whether it's, um, whether it's just a nasty sore throat. First and foremost, one side is markedly worse than the other. You might still get some slough and some um, inflammation of the other tonsil, but there's a significant difference. The second thing is that large amounts of visible tonsil mm. isn't necessarily Quincy. You need to see that deformity of the, um, the pharyngeal arches, the palate. So what you want to look for is the uvula pushed over. That's a really strong sign. Is the sort of the arch of the soft palate at the base of the uvula, is that bulging down, bulging forwards? Mm. Have you lost that kind of nice crisp line um, of, the, of the arch of the oropharynx? Because if you're losing that and the tonsils moved over and they've got the other symptoms, then it's quite likely to be a Quincy. Um, we've already spoke about the hot potato voice. The, the trismus makes life really difficult. Mm. And one of the best things that you can do for, quin for patients that might have a Quincy, both for your own examination and for the subsequent examination by ENT, is give them some really good pain relief. Um, Oromorph, IV paracetamol, you know, they, they often can't manage oral paracetamol. So if you've got mm -hmm. some liquid paracetamol, something like that, I'd steer clear of ibuprofen simply because they've probably not been eating for two or three days. It would be great, but you know, you don't want to irritate, irritate it yeah. too much. Yeah. Um, and then the next thing is that if you're in an environment such as A&E, um, getting some IV access, getting some IV fluids running, depending on their age, but most of these are young patients will tolerate a two hour bag pretty well. Um, and then getting some IV steroids into them. So we tend to give them a one-off dose of 6.6 milligrams of dexamethasone. And the beauty of that is that if you guys give it, you know, 20 minutes after they turn up to A&E, give us a call, we come down within an hour or so, the steroids have started to work and we can do a proper assessment at that point. Mm. And it really helps things from our point of view. That's probably the commonest thing we'll recommend when you call us. So yeah, once, you have, once you're having a look and you've, you've decided this is a Quincy, our intervention is going to be that we're going to de try and get that pus out of there. So we do that with an incision and drainage or an aspiration. Personally, I tend to incise and drain because if you can actually get the anatomy really nicely opened up, you can be confident that there is or isn't pus there. Okay. And sometimes there isn't. Sometimes they have what's called peritonsal cellulitis. So they've got irritation, inflammation, but they haven't quite started producing that pus yet. Will they, will they present similarly? Very similar. Yeah. And they'll have that same sort of appearance, but it tends to be that it's very red and mm. sore, okay. but not as bulging. They're sure. perhaps managing a little bit to drink. They're not as unwell. Mm. In those situations, they usually get referred as a Quincy, and that's completely fair enough, because okay. sometimes the only way we can tell is putting a needle in. Yeah. But if you follow the rules on that it's only on one side, that they've got these associated severe symptoms, and there is some deviation of the uvula or the palate, then you're going to be making good referrals. Um, and treatment otherwise is the same as, as tonsillitis, it's your penicillin-based antibiotics um, and um, we also add in metronidazole in Quincy's just because mm. you get a broader spectrum cover, they tend to have multiple organisms um, mm. in the pus. If you're admitting a, a patient with severe tonsillitis who doesn't have a Quincy but yeah. say can't swallow um, and they come in, what will you be doing for them on the ward? Is it IV antibiotics and observation? Yeah, so it's IV antibiotics, observation, usually some fluids to just top them up. Um, we tend to give them a dose of, of dex, and our real thing with, with these tonsillitis that we admit is once they can drink and ideally eat, they're good to go. Mm. And it tends to be getting them over the hump of the worst of it. We sometimes find that day three, day four is sort of the really bad spell, and then things really kick in and they start to get a lot better. Sure. So we're just trying to accelerate 
things and make them, you know, get them over that hump. Because once they're eating and drinking, the muscles start relaxing because they're being used. Mm. You're cleaning the back of the oropharynx so it's not sitting getting stagnant, and then things start to really sort of pick up. Yeah. Um, so shall we um, move on to talk about glandular fever at this yes, point? Is yeah. that right? I um, realise I've got completely out of order and we'll <laughs> straight to Quincy in my excitement. It's quite all right. Uh, so glandular fever, I had this when I was young. Uh, not nice. No, it's beastly. Uh, <laughs> um, young people, um, sore throat, lethargy, yeah. the kissing disease. Absolutely, yeah. So I wasn't a, a going around kissing when I was <laughs> little, I just think I was just unlucky, but yeah. So yeah, gl glandular fever is, I like to think of it as tonsillitis with a vengeance. Yeah. Um, and that's partly because the tonsils tend to be even larger and even sorer, but it's also because there tends to be a lot of other sort of associated symptoms and things going on. So. Glandular fever is a, is a disease of the young, it's teenagers and it's young adults sort of up to the 30s really. Um, and in these patients you've got a lot more associated symptoms, so you do your standard history, but then you ask about rash and they get the sort of viral blanching petechiae, you're asking about muscle pains, it's quite common to get those flu-like achy pains in, uh, in glandular fever patients. Um, your next sort of other thing is that they might have lymphadenopathy elsewhere or particularly they've got quite florid lymphadenopathy in their neck. Um, and these patients tend to be really lethargic and they feel like their throat's quite tight and sore. And actually on a few occasions I've been, I've been caught out and I've seen these glandular fever patients and I have put a scope down them because they felt so tight and so mm. constricted and that. And it's just been that their tonsils are so massive that they yeah. you know, feel tight and swollen. But sure. That, that is the level of sort of enlargement that you can sometimes get. Um, in terms of examination, it's all very similar. The only thing I would add to an examination of a glandular fever patient is if you've got even the slightest suspicion, um, I would examine their abdomen as well. Okay. Because if they've got a large liver, a large spleen, then you know they're they're at a higher risk of complications, and we'll talk about those in just a second. Mm. Um, management is exactly the same, um, and we do still give them antibiotics because there's a. a an appreciable number, I want to say in the 10-20% realm, but I can't remember the exact figure, that actually tend to have a bacterial superinfection. Mm. So it's, it's worth giving them the antibiotics. Um, Even though it's a virus that yes, initially causes exactly. it. Exactly. So glandular fever is viral and it's, uh, it's um, EBV usually um, that causes it. Um, so yeah, so the, the, we'll move on just a little bit to blood tests, because actually blood tests in glandular fever are a little bit different anyway. Mm. So we tend to do a, a glandular fever test, a monospot test, in all patients with um, tonsillitis sore throat anyway. But clearly that's the thing that's gonna come back as positive. Now that takes 24 hours, a little bit longer sometimes. So your cheat, your get out of jail free card is your LFTs. Because the vast majority of glandular fever patients will have an elevation of liver enzymes. Okay. Um, and it's usually your, your transaminases um, that, that are up. Um, it's something like three quarters that tend to have that. Have that. Okay. And the useful thing here is that everyone gets really upset and worried about those. They do resolve, and it takes about five or six weeks to resolve. Okay. And they're usually worse in the second week. So often these, these sort of glandular fever patients have been grumbling along trying to cope. And so when they come to you, they are actually at that peak point. Yeah. And what we tend to do with these guys is if we have found a, a raised, um, raised LFTs, we tend to write to the GPs and just um, request that they do repeat at about five or six weeks just to check it's normalised. Okay. So that's, that's our testing. Um, 
Otherwise, their full blood count is going to be very similar, except they'll have a lymphocyte predominance rather than a um, neutrophilia. Yeah, neutrophilia, yes. Um, and then moving on from that, really, treatment, as we've said, is the same. The only thing to mention is that... I'm sorry, I've lost my mic there. Uh, the only thing to mention is the, uh, the complications. Yeah. So there's, there's two main things with glandular fever. Number one is the sort of post-viral prodrome, warning, pa warning patients that they're going to feel rotten and exhausted yeah. for s probably six weeks. Um, the second thing is related to the enlarged liver, the spleen, the hepatosplenomegaly. Um, glandular fever does weaken the liver and your spleen, and so it's really important that we warn patients to avoid all contact sports, heavy lifting, gym, weight lifting, for six weeks, really. Okay. Because... Um, it's not common, but rupture, splenic rupture secondary to glandular fever is well documented mm. um, and is a significant risk. Sure. Um, so that's glandular fever. Um, the other thing to mention before we sort of leave behind the simple, uh, simpler common garden sore throats, tonsillitis and glandular fever is a disease of the young predominantly. Mm. And there's no sort of official cutoff point per se, but I start to get worried about patients 40 plus, but particularly 50 plus, who are coming in with sore throats. Because the, in the back of your mind, you've always got to have that thought, especially if they've got a smoking history or they've got some weight loss or they've got some more systemic symptoms. Is this something more serious? Is this malignant? Yeah. Because you don't tend to get sore throats in those ages. Now, mm. If they've got clear tonsillitis, etc., then we tend to treat them and bring them back for a follow-up because what we want to see is that things have normalised. Yeah. You know that they're not chronically suffering from these sore throats. Mm. Um, so yeah. Now, if we move on to the sort of slightly more complicated, the more worrying yeah. stuff. Um, so I guess, Jamie, what what from your point of view, what what starts to get you upset if you're seeing a sore throat? What worries you? Um, so. Good question. Again, it's the the presence of, of trismus. It's the fever. It's the you know the presence of shock. Um, I think the inability to move the, the head worries me. Um, you know, and I suppose it's the length of time as well. I think if you've got a patient who's had recurrent antibiotics, trips to the GP, and is coming back and. Um, failure to respond these are all things that worry me absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. Um, just before we we go into that in a bit more detail the the low level tachycardias the low level pyrexias the sort of patients mm. that look infective clearly um, but are sitting around the 90 100 you know temperatures of 37 8 etc you, you will get those yeah. with with tonsillitis patients and I, I i know you know that um so it is the it's the really sick ones it's the ones that are running at 140 150 their Probably blood pressure is dropping yeah. but the really toxic patients and they will start to look like that with a quinsy but quinsies are, and this is the most ridiculous term, um, but <laughs> bear with us on this one, are considered to be superficial deep neck space abscesses. Wonderful terminology. Okay. Um, but that is true because a, an, an untreated quinsy, the main risk and the reason why we take them seriously and get them drained straight away mm. is that that spreads and it becomes a true deep neck space infection. Mm. So if we, if we move now on to deep neck space infections, I'll talk a little bit about the anatomy first of all mm. and how it happens and then we'll move into when to worry, what's sure. the problem. So quinzies um, are peritonsillar abscesses. 
deep neck spaces are retropharyngeal and parapharyngeal um, abscesses. And the way I like to think about this relates to the way that we drain them, but it mm. helps to frame things in my mind. So a parapharyngeal abscess, if you stuck a needle through the back of someone's throat, like the right at the very back, their posterior wall, you'd get into their um, retropharyngeal space. And that's exactly what we do, actually. We make an incision down there and we drain the pus out. Similarly, with the parapharyngeal space, if you took someone's tonsils out and jabbed a knife into the base of the sort of tonsillar bed, again, you're into the parapharyngeal space. Mm. And the, the, the problems with these deep neck space abscesses are related to anatomical communications. So your parapharyngeal space can get to your carotid, and then you get horrendous disseminated infective um, conditions, you get mycotic aneurysms, and you can get clots, sort of infective clots that cause all kinds of havoc. Your, uh, your retropharyngeal space, the risk is that it communicates directly down into your mediastinum. Mm. So you end up with uh, mediastinitis, pericarditis, horrible thoracic VATS procedures, um, and really, really nasty infections. Um, so presentation-wise, I mean, these, these guys, exactly as Jamie said, are the, are the sick patients. And they're the ones that just can't move their neck. And there's a difference between a patient who's got sore lymph nodes and mm. who's got pus irritating every muscle in their neck. And these are the patients who are holding their neck to one side, slightly rotated, really reluctant to move it. In a child, you'll often find that they are shuffling around on their bottom rather than turning their head. Yeah. Or if their parents call them, they physically sort of rotate around on the spot on their feet rather than turning their neck. Mm -hmm. In adults, they tend to just be holding this really stiff position and really reluctant to move. And that's that's the most sensitive indicator, really. Those are the ones that really start to get us worried. Okay. But the other thing to think about is the, the, the patients, as you absolutely said, who've got long-term symptoms. They're not resolving. They've had lots of antibiotics. They're really starting to get sick and unwell. Mm. Um, and those are your deep, deep neck space abscesses. Treatment um, is broad-spectrum antibiotics. So we tend to go with IV comoxclav or kefenmet um, in okay. the panallergic. Yeah. Um, Steroids are useful because all of these spaces are neatly surrounding the airway and they, you know, the really severe ones you will end up needing to do awake intubations or, or tracheostomies to protect that airway whilst you get rid of the pus. Wow. Um, and most of the time in these patients actually, if they're that sick, what we tend to do is we take them straight up to theatre to do an awake intubation before we, um, before we try and open mm -hmm. anything up. How do you normally confirm the presence of an infection? Is it clinical or would, how much is there a role for CT imaging, for example? Very much a role for CT, yeah. So, yeah. so usually, in the vast majority of cases, unless the patient is so unstable and the scope shows such unusual anatomy that we've got to get something sorted straight away, mm. they're going to go for a CT first. Okay. And it's really important that, where possible, these patients have contrast CTs. Yeah, because we need to see the definition between the planes. We need to see the bright vasculature of the carotid, etc., so that we can tell what's going on. Um, but yeah, these patients are going to get diagnosed on uh, on CT usually. Okay. So it's strong clinical clinical suspicion and then CT. Mm. Um, so our, our last one doesn't fit quite as neatly into uh, into any of the boxes. So I'm going to have to um, jump out on a side note. Here. Jumping off onto a separate exactly. track. Yeah. So. We're going to talk about epiglottitis and supraglottitis. Yeah. Um, and the difference is purely anatomical. 
Children tend to get irritation and inflammation of the epiglottis. Adults tend to get irritation and inflammation of the supraglottis. So that's your arytenoids and the areopiglottic folds, which is the nice little rim that sort of goes round from your epiglottis back to your arytenoids. Um, and what have you, have you come across any patients with epiglottitis before, Jim? Yeah, so the, it's always the uh, patient with a sore throat who is drooling basically i mean that's yeah. that's the classic that's what gets us presence of stridor plus drooling yeah. uh, with a sore throat we are terrified of yeah. them uh off they go to resus we get access yeah. speak to you guys and also speak to anesthetics absolutely and resus is the right place for these patients because these patients have imminently threatened airways um so a rough sort of history for these guys and obviously it's not universal but these tend to be, they actually tend to have a quite short history and that's a good way to differentiate them from the deep neck spacers. They, they're as sick in terms of the way they look, but it tends to be a much more rapid onset. And you tend to find that these patients have sort of said, oh yeah, kind of, I was all right Thursday feeling a bit rubbish, Friday a lot worse, and the, today couldn't swallow a thing, absolute agony, and my voice, it's the voice, their voice mm. doesn't sound the same, they've got this change in their voice, it's uh, painful to speak. Um, and. The other thing that's quite, um, quite, quite sensitive for these patients is significant amounts of pain in the absence of findings in the oropharynx. So if you've got a patient that can't swallow a thing, they've got some voice change, they've got quite a rapid onset, and you look in their mouth expecting to see massive tonsils, and there's very little, you know, yeah. slightly red oropharynx maybe, but nothing else, alarm bells are really ringing at that point. Okay. Um, because you need an explanation for these level of symptoms, especially if they're also breathless. If you've got a patient that's sort of sitting forwards, using their accessory muscles, really working hard, this is the point where we're starting to really worry. Mm -hmm. um, and so our management for these sorts of patients is gonna be, you wanna get IV access really quickly, absolutely right. You wanna get some, uh, some steroids into them, you wanna take that swelling down, and that's gonna be 6.6 milligrams of dexamethasone again. Um, you want to uh, you want to start some treatment, and if you're thinking um, superglottitis, epiglottitis, then uh, it's usually keftriaxone. Um, but we would tend to make that diagnosis on a scope. Yeah. Um, so the dex is the really important thing to get in. And if they're that sick, um, particularly if they're stridorous, but if they're really struggling, nebulized adrenaline is your friend. Um, and it it's, it's, it doesn't need anything fancy. It doesn't need anything sort of specific nebulizable adrenaline. A vial of 1,000 adrenaline mixed in four or five mils of saline, mix it up, put it in the chamber, get it on that patient's face. That will make a huge difference and buys time. Mm. Um, so when we come down, what we're going to do is we're going to do a scope. Now, we're talking about adults at the moment, and I'm going to talk about children in just a second because yeah. there is an important distinction, <laughs> um, which everyone gets taught at med school, yeah, but I'm going to hammer it over again because it's yeah. really important. So in adults, they have a much better scaffolding for their airway, it's less collapsible, it's, it's safe to scope them. Um, you'll find that when I come down to A&E, I warn people before I scope people who I think might have epiglottitis, I say to them, look, have the airway trolley, you know, airway trolley ready, where is it if I don't know the department well? I'm about to scope a patient with a potentially threatened airway. Mm. If I call for help, I need everyone and I need anaesthetics on their way. Mm. Um, I just think, you know, it sometimes worries people, but I'd always rather people were thinking about it than it comes out of the blue and everyone's Absolutely, rushing yeah. around. Yeah. So 
When we put the scope down, we are looking for that big red swollen epiglottis. And that's where the risk comes from. Um, because if the epiglottis is really swollen or the arytenoids or the um, aryepiglottic folds are really swollen, it can very easily close over the airway. Mm. And it's the same situation as uh, deep neck space really awake intubation or even tracheostomy in the really severe cases okay. and they're going to need prolonged course of antibiotics gradual sort of um, slow wean on ITU test for leaks around the tube and, and see when it's safe to extubate them uh, and in children in children yes <laughs> so it's hammer this point stars absolutely. around it yeah so yep. the, the classic presentation of a child is the toxic drooling red in the face child who's really distressed really sore parents are beside themselves and they're usually bent over really struggling to breathe neck muscles bulging because they're sort of using every muscle available these are the patients that whatever you do do not upset them keep them <laughs> on their mum's knee Get them to roar like a lion and look in their throat, but don't jam things in the back of the throat. You know, you do not want to upset these children. Um, IV access is best left um, and, until you know we know for certain what's going on. And in those circumstances, anaesthetics and ENT are going to joint assess them together, with the likelihood being that if they're that um, that threatened, that, that that upset, they're going to need um, intubation. Yeah. Um, so the, the the key point is just keep that child happy. Keep that child happy um, and call in ENT and, a, uh, and anaesthetics and we'll very happily come and assess them. Making it very clear, I have a stridorous drooling child. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, <laughs> S-bar, yeah. proper S-bar, come of as course. quickly as you can. And yeah. we, will, we will be right there because we're as worried as you are about these children. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Um, uh, is there anything else? To talk I, think, about. I think that probably comes sore throats quite uh, quite well. Yeah. Um, anything anything no. else? You any stories you have of things that you didn't quite make sense? Things that sort of. So the the other thing I mean I have seen cases of patients with uh, a swollen uvula and and that's mm. their own so they have a foreign body sensation in the back of the throat. This is quite you know I wouldn't say common common but I certainly yeah. see at least one you know a few a year who walk into our ambulatory area and they've got this foreign body sensation yeah. and they may have thought they've choked on something and you have a look and they've got a very edematous their tonsils look alright but their uvula is very edematous yeah uh, what you know it's yeah yeah it's a common one um, there's a number of possible things going on here mm. um, and the first, the first thing that, that, that you sort of want to know is, have they had an operation recently? Because intubational trauma and, um, and uvular edema is incredibly common. And if that's, you know, if three days ago they had a routine operation, at that point I'm not, not too worried. I'm almost expecting it. Mm. Um, similarly, if they've had a recent tonsillectomy or something like that, it's yeah. very common to get reactive um, sure. uvular, edema, uvular edema then. Um, the next thing is smokers. Once again, smokers get the brunt of everything. Um, uvular edema is quite common in smokers. Um, the only thing to check about there is do they have other symptoms? Have they got a chronic sore throat? Have they got weight loss? Have they got night sweats? You know, because occasionally that that uvular swelling is a mark of irritation, chronic irritation that actually is something deeper as well. Mm. Um, if you've got none of these features, then it it sort of depends on the associated features. If you've got a completely isolated uvular swelling with not a lot else going on, then 
it's you know it, it doesn't really worry us, doesn't bother us too it's much. One of those things. It's it's one of those things exactly. If you've got a patient who gets a lot of reflux type symptoms, who gets a lot of heartburn, who wakes up with a really nasty taste in the mouth most days, who has a chronic clearing their throat, always coughing, mm. these patients have probably got um, laryngopharyngeal reflux or silent reflux, and the uvular edema may be related to that. Okay. In that instance, um, then if they're not already on um, an anti-reflux medication, omeprazole or anzoprazole, well worth starting. Mm. Um, and the other trick you can try with them is ice cold fizzy water. So tell them to keep a bottle of um, fizzy water in the fridge at all times. It numbs the back of the throat. It helps to soothe things up. It stops them constantly coughing and making things worse. Okay. Um, and Gaviscon's the other thing, um, mm. you know, with meals and at night that can really help. Other indigestion tablets are available. Of course, yes. <laughs> my, my apologies. I forget that this uh, that I have to be uh, non-proprietary. <laughs> so um, these, so these patients, the the things we tend thing we would tend to do there is say to them, look, try these measures. If things improve, fantastic. If they don't improve, see your GP and seek a referral to ENT and we'll yeah. you know, stick cool. a scope down and make sure. Cool. Your last category of patients are the ones that have got a really sore throat or they've got a lot of pain or they're really uncomfortable and they've got this uvular swelling but not a lot else. Mm. Occasionally uvular swelling in an actually sick patient with sore throat is a hallmark of something deeper. Okay. Um, and in those patients, I will always put a scope down just to sure. make sure. And actually, if I've been called to a patient with a swollen um, uvula, unless I can find a definite cause, intubation or um, kind of chronic smoking with no other problems, I tend to put a scope down because I'm going to see the signs of reflux. I'm going to see the deeper infection. And if there's nothing there, we can reassure. Sure. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Tom. No, you're very welcome. So when you are invited back for future episodes, so we'll be delighted to see you again in the future. But thank you so much for coming no, very and well. sort of taking us through sore throat. Not a problem at all. all Thanks, right. Tom. Thanks. Bye. That was the Take or Release uh, Patient with a Sore Throat podcast. You can find the blog entry uh, for this podcast, including the take visually, at uh, takeorally.com. Remember, you can find Take Orally at uh, both Facebook and Twitter, as well as subscribe to us at uh, SoundCloud or iTunes. For more information about research and education opportunities within emergency medicine, acute medicine, and major trauma, remember, you can check out Dream, uh, NUH Dream at both Facebook and Twitter.